Hi, everybody, and welcome to Population Health Plugin, a show highlighting current public health issues in our community and topics of interest to students across the university. My name is Greg Pavella, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Public Health. And I am delighted today to be joined by a former student of mine, Ashley Chappelle, to talk about some of the work that she does at Jefferson County Department of Health. I really enjoyed doing this podcast interview with Ashley. We touch on a lot of different topics, including some of her educational experiences at UAB, internship experiences that she had that helped prepare her for her current position, as well as how she found her current position at JCDH. Um, she gives good advice about how to prepare for job interviews, some strategies that she uses to get her resume ready. And I think she offers a lot of good practical advice to UAB students listening to this podcast who are thinking about going into a public health career. All right. So, Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Hi. So, uh, so Ashley graduated with her MPH from the University of Alabama at Birmingham in 2020, and your concentration was in epidemiology. And I actually met you when you were a, a star student in my <laughs> survey design course. And we talked maybe a little about SAS, and I know you're a SAS expert now. And so <laughs> yeah. We've stayed in touch after that course. And right now, and this is the reason why I brought you in, is you are currently a disease intervention specialist at the Jefferson County Department of Health. And so that, that's going to be the focus of what we're, we're talking about today. But before we get to kind of what your your work looks like mm -hmm. uh, at Jefferson County Department of Health, I just kind of want to learn a little bit about your, your public health career trajectory here, okay. beginning as an MPH student at UAB on through JCDH. And you've got a good story. Um, and I know that because I'm going to confess that I spied on your <laughs> LinkedIn page. And you have a really good LinkedIn page. It's better than mine. Thank you. Yeah, if I had to hire somebody, I'd probably hire you instead of me. <laughs> you've, got a great, you've got a great LinkedIn page. Getting to where you are now at JCDH, I noticed one of the uh, things that you did, I believe, while you were an MPH student, was a three-month internship as a student trainee with the National Institutes of Health. And this was part of an initiative to train researchers dedicated to advancing health equality. So what did you do during that internship? Um, so basically, I just got exposure to the whole research process, like um, the literature review, finding that information, familiarizing yourself with the topic, which was kind of difficult because my mentors, like they've been working on this particular subject all their lives. And I was just kind of learning about it. So I had a lot of reading, um, which is normal for a literature review I found. And then I got introduced to the scientific writing process, which is very different from what I've done like all my life. Um, you know, I used MLA format and APA, but like scientific writing um, as a profession is so different. So I got exposure to that and basically using um, statistical software like Jump, SAS um, to process your data that you've collected from the surveys that we use, the um, 200 question food frequency questionnaire that we used, um, which was much like what you introduced me to in class. And um, the process of getting a work published, you're not gonna always get it approved that first, <laughs> you know, that first time. And 
Well, did you get it published the first time? So we're going to jump no. ahead. Okay. That's good. <laughs> so uh, on Ashley's amazing LinkedIn page, uh, very recently, I think just this month, you had your first research publication. Right. Speaking of scientific writing. Mm -hmm. And so you submitted this publication to a journal and wasn't accepted the first time, but ultimately it was. So the title of this article was Racial Differences in Dietary Choices and Their Relationship to Inflammatory Potential in Childbearing Age Women at Risk for Exposure to COVID-19. It mouthful. is yeah. <laughs> that's a mouthful. That's why I had to write it down. And so what did you do in this research? Um, my main job was the literature review, um, just so I could learn about the subject itself and attempt to do that scientific writing that I told you about. Not easy. <laughs> so right. writing the proposal and then the entire like manuscript, attempting to do that, making the tables. One of the, in my view, one of the differences between scientific writing and just regular writing is you have to be very concise and to the point. Yes. And, and as an undergraduate, sometimes you get, you have, you know, you have to write five pages. You got to fill out those five pages. Mm -hmm. But with a manuscript, you have like the background section, which is like three paragraphs. You right. got to get everything into three paragraphs. Right. And seeing like your PI strike through three sentences, I was like, oh, I worked really hard on this. <laughs> but yeah, it's hard to stay really concise and to the point and not get wordy when you're doing that scientific writing. What did you find in this publication? What did I find? Yeah, what did you what did you learn about um, inflammatory diets and, and a, a potential differences in vulnerability to COVID-19 among people that live in Birmingham? So I found that your diet definitely impacts your health in so many ways. Um, from minor things that you might eat, not even your entire meal, just maybe condiments that you put on your food can definitely affect your inflammatory um, potential. Mm. I did not know that prior to this experience that diet could really affect so many things on, on a molecular level, just looking at even what you drink with your meals and how it affects your inflammatory potential. It was shocking and that that potentially relates to someone's uh exposure or ability to recover from COVID-19 perhaps I think was the right. hypothesis of the paper right so it definitely affects your severity um for COVID-19 your diet well congratulations on your first publication thank you and so that comes out of your internship with the National Institutes of Health and now let's get to your position at the Jefferson uh, County Department of Health. First, let me just start off for, for some of the students listening who are thinking about, you know, getting their, their careers and working in public health. Mm -hmm. How did you hear about this position at, at JCDH? So I was actually a friend of someone who was interning at the time, and she would tell me about the work she was doing there, and she was super excited about it. And it sounded like a good opportunity, so I decided to apply as well. So it sounds like the, these relationships that you formed from other people, these kind of these informal information networks are, are pretty important. Definitely. For your friend that was interning there, was that an intern as part of her MPH degree or something else? 
Um, I think it was the opportunity that she found on her own. Um, it wasn't a part of her current curriculum. Mm-hmm. One, I think one of the, the benefits of doing an internship, at least as part of the MPH program, is allows folks to uh, network with individuals doing work related to public health. And that can be a really effective way to hear about these job opportunities, kind of like how you heard about job opportunities at JCDH with with your friend. I used to be uh, an advisor, actually, to undergraduates when I was at the University of Florida, and they were required to complete this internship. And, you know, these were sociology majors, and sometimes sociology, the career for sociology majors, the opportunities are not as many as they are for someone like you with training in SAS and epidemiology in the middle of a pandemic. And so they want to know, how can I get a job? And one of the best opportunities to learn about jobs that might be hard to find is through these internships and networking with with people. So it's interesting to hear that's also how you found your position at JCDH. And what was the application process like? So basically, I uploaded my resume and, you know, the basic questions like, what is your work history? What are your interests? Even though my work history wasn't relevant at the time, but it was an internship application. And they tried to make it very similar to the actual position that I'm in now. So even though my work history didn't apply, like I had to, you know, put that down and um, some of my interests, recent um, volunteer history, things like that. Did you have to do an interview? I, I did. And it was with four people. How did <laughs> I you, was really nervous. Did you prepare at all for the interview? Definitely rehearsed in the mirror <laughs> for a few days. Was it what you expected when you went into the interview? Um, it was because my contact for the position, she made me very privy to the interview. It was a star method. This is a great contact that you have. At right. <laughs> She's actually my sorority sister as well. Oh. So, yes. Well, let me read to you the formal resume description as, as it comes from your very professional LinkedIn page. Uh, as uh, a disease intervention specialist, you carry out full-scale investigations into infections, communicable diseases, and outbreaks with a primary focus on vaccine-preventable diseases, which now includes COVID-19, thankfully. Right. <laughs> so that's the formal description, but uh, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Um, so basically, on a daily basis, I would be contacting patients who have tested positive for a vaccine-preventable disease and telling them how to prevent the spread of that disease and then asking them a few questions related to their symptoms, um, health history, and um, giving them education on the particular disease in question. And how do you get the names of these individuals to try and educate them a little bit? Um, So the labs are required to report to us by law for um, certain diseases like um, rubella, um, varicella, strep pneumo, hepatitis, and COVID-19. And now COVID-19. Let me see if I so if I can understand a little bit here. So if I like if I'm a patient, I go to a health clinic. Maybe I go to the clinic at UAB, and uh, they need to send my blood to do some lab work, and mm-hmm. and they find 
that I do have a vaccine-preventable disease. For most labs, then, those labs are required to report these positive findings to JCDH for, for record keeping. Correct. And have you ever had to call somebody and you're the first person to tell them? Yes. <laughs> Is that normal or what happens? Um, I think the labs end up reporting to us a little bit faster or they're not able to get in contact with that patient as quickly as we are. And so I just had to explain to them the entire process of this being a, a disease that is required to be reported to us by law. And how do people generally respond to your calls? Um, it depends on the person. Some people are really psyched out and freaked out and they don't know what to do. And then others are like, oh, okay. Or some are already familiar with the process. I might be a little freaked out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how did you get my information? Yeah, how did you get my information? <laughs> uh, so that reminds me, there's uh, an interesting program that was started in New York State. I don't know if it's ongoing, but the idea was that labs that were now testing for uh, fasting insulin and whether or not maybe people had prediabetes or diabetes, that those re lab results would then have to re be reported to the New York Health Department with the idea that these individuals could then take steps to prevent themselves from developing complications related to diabetes. So instead of focusing on sort of infectious vaccine-preventable diseases like COVID-19, that these individuals uh, could potentially be preventing more chronic diseases like diabetes. And there was some controversy about this, and people are worried about their health information being sent to uh, the, the health department. But based on your experiences in terms of uh, educating people and helping people understand their health conditions, do you think there is some value to trying to intervene early in the disease process? Definitely, most certainly. Um, I think what you just mentioned is really great because there's such an emphasis on infectious diseases. And I think that we should focus on chronic diseases as well because they can also be prevented, some of them. I agree, of course. So I'm going to uh, bring in something called the theory of planned behavior here. Okay. okay. <laughs> Does this ring a bell? Do you remember anything <laughs> about the theory of planned behavior? Just a little bit from the social and behavioral um, core yeah. courses. <laughs> okay, very good. Don't worry. I'm not going to test you or quiz you or anything. Some okay. of the students that are listening to this might be in the middle of working on a project related to the theory of planned behavior. Mm -hmm. But just in brief, the theory of planned behavior tries to predict somebody's intentions to take action to protect themselves. And there's kind of three big things that the theory of planned behavior hypothesizes will influence someone's behavior. And I'll, I'll mention those briefly. And then as you're listening to it, I'll be curious to know if based on your interactions with people, if some of this rings true in terms of what people care about when they're thinking about taking steps to protect themselves. So the first is, is attitudes. That is, what do people believe uh, is going to happen if they take action or don't take action? Uh, and if they think those consequences are good or bad, and those you know, folks' attitudes. Uh, and then uh, subjective norms. So what do their family members say? What do their friends say? What do their peers say? What do you say? Uh, and then do they care about what other people think? So do they care 
about what their parents' thoughts are regarding a vaccination. Uh, and then finally, um, perceived control. So do they feel like they are able to uh, take uh, actions to protect themselves? Like it's within their power to do so. And are there things that make it easier or more difficult for them to take steps to protect themselves? So just kind of like the, with those broad brush strokes, are these the kinds of things that come up when you're educating people about their vaccine preventable diseases? Most definitely. Um, the number one question I get for hepatitis is, is there a treatment? <laughs> um, there is a treatment, but it's not that effective. So their attitudes change when they get the education on the illness because some people don't know what hepatitis is. They're like, what did you say I have again? <laughs> and I have to explain to them how it is an infectious um, virus that impacts the liver. Um, these may have been some of your symptoms because of this illness. And then I have more of their attention and they're more willing to hear what I have to say because I've let them know this is what you have. This is what it is. And then this is what you can do to prevent it. So when I educate them on what it is, it's easier to give them the preventative measures and they're more likely to um, receive those. It sounds like people are almost moving along different stages. Mm -hmm. Like this first stage, they don't have any idea what's going on. And, and then you give them a call on a Saturday afternoon mm -hmm. and you're like, I want to talk to you about something. <laughs> uh, and then you give them a little education. Now maybe they are a little bit more ready to take action. That's really interesting. So there's actually uh, different kinds of models in health behavior that hypothesize that people move along different stages of what's called readiness to change. And one of those models specifically has like as its first stage, completely unaware. People oh. are completely, <laughs> is, in your experience, is this a common stage that people are in in terms of unaware of what they can do to protect themselves? Definitely until I let them know. And sometimes they may even ask me what they can do before I give them the preventative measures. So they're interested for, for that help and for that education. Definitely. So you're doing important work. <laughs> yes, classic public health. <laughs> Very classic public health. Health education, sort of a major aspect of any public health effort. And I think you actually have to go back to work now. It's about that time. <laughs> you got you to gotta go make some calls. Are you calling people today? Yes. Okay. Well, thank you for the work that you do at JCDH. Thank you for calling people and, and helping provide them with education. Uh, all in the middle of a pandemic, you were working with JCDH in the middle of COVID-19. Uh, yes. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me. Thank you to everyone for listening. Please tune in next time for another episode of Population Health Plugin. Mm -hmm.